and welcome to part two of our discussion with Allens. In the first episode, we looked at buy now, pay later. And in this episode, we're going to take a broader look at other payments trends in the UK and Australia. Thanks, Simon. To kick things off, let's talk about open banking. I think it's fair to say that in the UK, open banking is starting to find its feet. At the start of 2021, over 3 million people and businesses were using it here. As you know, open banking refers to the way that third-party providers can get access to bank customers' data in a secure way. I know there were some proposals to roll out open banking in Australia. Rob and Elise, what's the latest? In Australia, our equivalent to the open banking regime is known as the consumer data right. Um, And it was a policy um, intervention that had the genesis from our competition regulator, who was particularly concerned uh, due to low levels of switching in banking markets. And the CDR, as it's colloquially uh, known, had, had came into operation last year. Um, it applies to account, um, deposit accounts as well as um, mortgage and personal accounts for at least the big four banks in Australia. But it's fair to say that we're at early um, days of its operation and um, it remains to be seen whether the, the CDR will have the effect of facilitating switching and whether we'll see increased consumer switching between between the banks down here. At the moment, the open banking regime is only mandated for the big four retail banks in Australia. Um, and so they are the only ones that are required to make their information available at this particular stage. The next phase of that project is is to bring on board all of the other banks, the, the non-majors. Um, and that will happen in the middle of this year. And then opt-in participants also can, can come on board at any time. And, and they're sort of, at this stage, not required to have uh, reciprocity in their data management. So they can just receive the open banking information. They don't have to also make it available back, but that also will come in as the next phase of the project. So um, that's quite, you know, it, we're, we're moving towards a much more open model, but at the moment it's still very much in its early stages. And what type of data is caught? That's also working on a phased approach. So as Rob mentioned, we've currently got transaction account information that's made available and and we've just very recently moved to home loans uh, and and personal loan information that's being made available. But then there'll be also a phase three where we move to more commercial type information that that can be made available. Um, But that's a little way in the future at the moment. And who is it that can get their hands on the data? It's not everyone, is it? I think it is very much... Uh, very fair to say that there's only a limited number of accredited data recipients, so the the recipients and and the apps and and the fintechs that are actually making use of this data. There's not that many at the moment. There's probably, uh, I think it's fair to say, quite a few more screen scrapers around in the market than there are um, accredited data recipients at this stage. So we are really just starting to see the impacts of how that's going to play out in our fintech market with our our different um, our different players. It's interesting because in the EU, banning screen scraping was one of the main aims of PSD2, but it sounds like screen scraping is still used in Australia. So we do still have screen scraping in Australia. Uh, It's a pretty interesting issue because our fintech providers are not part of open banking yet. They're not banks. And so they've been looking for ways to get consumer information and make the onboarding process as quick and seamless as possible. And one of the ways to do that is obviously asking a consumer to give you their login details and screen scraping their bank statements. 
the tricky thing from a financial services regulatory perspective is that you're actually causing the customer to breach the terms of the product that they have with the bank. And it creates a little bit of a liability issue from an e-payments code perspective. The e-payments code is the code that governs mistaken and unauthorised payments um, and generally electronic payments laws in Australia. And it provides a whole range of protections for consumers where there has been fraud or unauthorised payments on their account. Unfortunately, part of the e-payments code means that those protections are largely not available if a customer voluntarily gives their login details to a third party. And that is exactly the mechanism that's used for screen scraping. So when a customer gives their login details to log into online banking, not only are they breaching the terms of their banking product, but potentially if there is an unauthorised transaction, they won't be able to recover from the financial institution for that transaction because they've provided their login details to a third party. So I think it's a really tricky issue because it's very commonly being used and I don't think as many consumers are aware of what the potential consequences are when they enter the details. That's my take from a payment perspective, but Elise probably has a lot more details from a reg tech perspective or a tech perspective. Is that right, Elise? Thanks, Nicola. That, that's right. I think it's very, very fair to say that it's it's used a lot um, and there are there is very significant consumer take-up. Customers are not adverse to handing over their banking login details if it means that they're going to get some, you know, what they see as a financial benefit from it. Either they'll be able to access a new product that's available via fintech or they'll be able to use a, you know, financial wellness app which will tell them how great their credit score is or how they can, you know, how they can improve their credit score, um, whatever that might be, or that they need to stop, you know, spending so much money on, on Uber Eats or, or something along those lines. Um, so I think that's absolutely right that there's a, a considerable take up from that perspective. And I think, you know, as, as one of the people, uh, as a, a few of us on this call are, who write those terms and conditions that nobody reads, um, I think it's very, very clear that there are, you know, consumers don't understand the impact of handing over that login information. Um, some of the banks are, uh, the big, bigger banks are sort of responding to that. So when they think that that's happened, when they can see, obviously, through their own security systems that there has been, you know, unauthorised access that might actually have been authorised by the customer, but not the customer accessing those um, that information. They are sort of sending prompts back to the customer directly saying, hey, have you handed off your information to somebody? Um, you log in detail to someone, you know, you're in breach of the terms, you shouldn't do that, um, and those sorts of things. And actually almost trying to promote their own open banking solution. Um, you just have to find the relevant fintech that's actually accessing that information via, via that accredited um, process. But the idea is that they are really trying to flip into the more regulated space. But it's, it is something that is, is certainly used a lot. And I know even with our um, BNPL providers, some of them use it as uh, a sort of a, a, by way of a, a bit of a credit check. Some of them don't do formal credit checks, but they do do a, use a screen scraping process to actually just check bank account data and information and and see you know what's in those accounts and whether or not they can um, they think it's they're, you know comfortable to take on that particular customer. So it's certainly something that we're seeing used quite a bit. Um, and obviously in terms of data, it's it's not you know particularly regulated outside that contractual arrangement around the terms and conditions, other than how Nick's mentioned in the e-payments code. 
from a lender's perspective, it's a really handy tool to make sure that the credit or you know the financial product that's being provided to a customer does remain suitable and there is that affordability overlay as well. I think all of that together just shows us and, and particularly highlights that we are ready to move forward with open banking if if it's you know a regime that can be made accessible to these fintechs and to the other credit providers it is actually something that we're ready to move forward with in the market. Another hot topic in financial services is operational resilience. At the time of recording we're waiting for the UK regulators to finalise new rules which will apply to many firms including payment institutions and payment systems. These new rules will require firms to prepare for IT problems in a new way and stay within acceptable levels of disruption. I expect resilience is also on the agenda in Australia. Is that right? Thanks, Francis. That's absolutely right. Resilience is very much on the radar in Australia, particularly in relation to cyber resilience and integrity of data systems. But it's not a uniform approach. It's very much a patchwork of lots of different types of regulation and lots of different reviews that are currently uh, underway that we think are going to come together to, to provide this operational resilience framework. Um, the first kind of three points, three key things I, I would like to touch on there. So the first one is around uh, proposed reforms to Australia's critical infrastructure laws. Now this is a reform that's very well progressed. It will be coming into, into law very soon and um, and the, the final sort of pieces of, of the, the framework are being nutted out at the moment. Um, but it's keenly focused on ensuring resilience of, of systems of national significance. And what the, the reforms have done is, is expanded what systems of national significance are, um, and also then expanded the resilience framework around what needs to, to be in place in, in respect of those particular systems. Um, and it's particularly focused on cybersecurity. So um, the idea is that it will be designed across differently across different sectors, depending on what type of infrastructure it is and, and, and what sector it belongs to. Um, but particularly in the payment space, payment systems is being called out as a, as a, key, key, a key critical infrastructure component. And so there will be particular new laws that will apply to the way that that is protected and, and the resilience framework that needs to sit around that. So that's sort of the first piece of, of the puzzle on that operational resilience that we're starting to see unfold. Um, sort of something that's already in place and, and the next sort of phase of that is around APRA's uh, new information security standard. So APRA is our prudential regulator here. So any regulated entities, be them banks, super funds, insurers, uh, are governed by a particular standards. And, and the new information security standard, I say new, it's been around for a little while, but it's sort of really coming into the floor at the moment, um, requires all of those entities that are regulated to establish and maintain quite robust processes around and controls and oversight over their information assets, which includes obviously their data, but also their actual security, their IT, IT systems and IT environments as well. Um, and that includes where those assets are managed by a third party. So there was a, a quite a large body of work, in fact, an enormous body of work that's been done by those regulated entities over the last few years. Firstly, setting up their own internal processes and structures and making sure that they can comply with the new prudential standard, but also engaging with their third party contractors and their outsourcing contractors of all levels, not necessarily material outsourcing contractors, but all contractors um, to ensure that they are also meeting and working within that regulated entities framework that they've designed for their own security purposes. Um, and that's also 
meant mending a lot of contracts to bring in, bring in new, uh, new obligations. So there's been an enormous body of work that's been done by those regulated entities uh, over the last little while. And then the third element, I think, to the operational resilience aspect of sort of the payments landscape is that we're currently undergoing a, a payment systems review um, that we're expecting the report to be handed down in the next month or so at the time of recording in about April um, 2021. And we expect, um, very much expect resilience to be a key part or a key component of the fallout from that review. Thanks, Elise. Let's bring in Johnny Ford now from the Linklater's Antitrust team to talk about the competition perspective. We've seen a lot of merger activity in the payment sector in the UK, which has led to significant reviews by the UK's Competition and Markets Authority. And we saw this in the CMA investigating Visa's attempted acquisition of Plaid, ultimately scuppered in the, the US. But a recent UK report on FinTech flagged that they need, there may be some need for a consolidation in the sector and asked the CMA to start taking a more flexible approach given it's a fast-moving um, sector. Rob, um, is the payment sector uh, getting the same attention from your authority? The payment sector is getting quite significant attention from the ACCC, our competition authority, but also from policymakers in this regard, particularly from the, the Treasury. Um, the, at, at the moment, um, the payment system is actually going through a wholesale review. Um, including the, the um, looking at issues of competition, and that's been carried out uh, from the Treasury as opposed to by the ACCC. But, but um, um, so that will unpack really what is going on in the Australian payment system and and areas any suggested areas for improvement. In terms of the the ACCC's remit specifically, um, there has been a theme that has been bumbling away for a while as the concern as to the extent to which our domestic payment schemes can compete effectively with the international credit card schemes in particular. Um, and at the, this is going to come to the fore uh, in the first half of this year because there's a proposal for uh, three domestic schemes in Australia to merge. So we've got um, a payments scheme, which is called FPOS, um, a, an online bill payment scheme, which is called BPay, and a platform for real-time bank transfers, which is called the NPP. And the proposal is for those three schemes to merge to become one. All of the, the schemes, uh, the shareholders of the schemes are actually common because the, the shareholders are um, primarily the big four banks, as well as some of the major retailers. And a key area of focus, um, I think, for the ACCC will be on the extent to which that merger has the benefit of creating an entity of bigger scale um, and one that can operate more of a hybrid um, approach to payments, look, not, focusing not just on card payments, but also on account-to-account -account payments, and therefore compete not only against um, the international credit card schemes, but also against some of the other players that are coming into the Australian market, be that fintechs, or in particular, there's a lot of talk around um, big tech banking and the future of that. Well, that sounds like a fascinating case. I mean, we've seen a lot of attention in the UK, like global regulators everywhere, on so-called killer acquisitions, these acquisitions by 
significant incumbents of uh, nascent competitors trying to um, uh, get rid of a, a problematic um, uh, smaller competitor in dynamic markets. Is that something you've seen a lot of in, in Australia as well? This is another area of real focus, um, Johnny. It's it's the genesis, um, like most competition authorities, is in the big tech world, and this concern that uh, the big tech platforms from a number of years have acquired smaller players, and um, which has entrenched the the position that they enjoy in their respective markets. And at the moment, the ACCC um, well, has is conducting a review of the Google Fitbit merger um, that was obviously cleared in Europe subject to conditions. Um, an area of focus for the ACCC is on potential competition um, between Fitbit and Google, as well as the potential for um, the data that Google may um, uh, have access to as a result of the acquisition and what that means for Google's position in some of the other markets in, in which it operates. Actually, the, um, Google and Fitbit have closed the deal um, without the ACCC's approval, and so that's now moved to an investigatory phase. This question of um, killer acquisitions is going to come up more pertinently in a financial services context because one of our big four players, um, NAB, is um, in the process of potentially acquiring a challenger bank, 86400. And that is undergoing a review by the ACCC. A focus of the ACCC's review is on the potential competition between that nascent challenger and um, the and NAB, as well as the as as well as the big four. So I suspect this will be an area um, where the ACCC's thinking on the loss of potential competition will be um, explored. It, Admittedly, the term killer acquisition or reverse killer acquisition probably doesn't have as um, common parlance in, in Australia. It's really a concern around the loss of potential competition. And the ACCC has had that concern for a number of years and has actually amended our, our sort of amendment of our merger laws so that the court specifically is required to look at the loss of potential competition um, when a, when a merger case goes before it. But it's definitely a watch this space. That's fascinating. I mean, in terms of the assessment of potential competition, it's certainly something that the CMA in the UK has been looking to address in um, in the context of, for instance, PayPal, Zettel, and it was also a, a relevant consideration in, um, in, in other deals. So uh, it'll be interesting to watch this space uh, to see how the Challenger Bank um, case evolves. And in terms of the Google Fitbit case, it's, as you mentioned, the EC um, cleared that transaction um, and the UK authority at the time, um, pre-Brexit, wouldn't have had jurisdiction to review it. Um, but it's notable that the CMA's uh, CEO recently said that they actually wouldn't have found the commitments that were offered at European level acceptable and they would have um, followed the Australian route. So we may see an opportunity for divergence, um, you know, coming around the corner as uh, as Brexit comes to fruition. I do have a personal theory that perhaps post-Brexit, you might actually see an increase in convergence between um, the ACCC and the CMA um, as you come more firmly gripping back into the common law world and um, 
are not subject to to, to what Luxembourg necessarily is, is saying. Yeah, and obviously um, we operate some of the voluntary regimes in the world, so sometimes have to play catch up with these um, with, with these um, deals. So yeah, we'll we'll have to watch this space as well. Final thought from me is what we're seeing in um, Australia, and I think it's similar globally in the payment space, is a multiplicity of payment channels opening up and consumers expecting to have multiple rails through which they can pay. And I think that's driven in Australia, particularly by the high uptake of mobile payments, because we are all now using our phones to pay. There's not that much difference between paying on card or transferring money on your phone um, using an account-to-account -account based solution. And that actually creates quite interesting competition issues because you see um, entities who may not have been competitors starting to butt up against each other, but also entities who, um, who could be competitors in other spheres starting to work um, together. So there is a, a rich tapestry that's developing in Australia and I think it is an exciting time in the payment sector down here. And I think just to add to that from the competition perspective, that kind of dynamic and evolution of the payments market raises um, potential antitrust um, concerns around sort of cooperation, but also the kind of merger concerns that we've talked about, about um, acquisitions of nascent competitors in adjacent markets. And you can see those um, filtering into uh, competition authorities reviews globally. Elise, any final thoughts from you? And I think from a, a technology perspective, you know, we've we've got, as Rob mentioned, this this rich tapestry that's developing and, and that's all being built across different technology stacks. There's different, you know, different technology at play. Um, and that's going to that that sometimes can create some some tensions similar to the competition tensions where you've got different parties who are trying to work together uh, and they're finding that, you know, there's challenges in the way that they can do that from a technical perspective. So when we uh, then think about how open banking and operational resilience overlays with that, I think, you know, we'll have obviously, hopefully more access to data for more more participants in the system to, through the open banking regime. And we're going to actually see different rails develop. We're going to see, you know, potentially, as Rob mentioned, you know, a, a formation of a giant payment system, a, a giant payment platform um, with our FPOS BPAY and a new payments platform, you know, potentially coming together. So I think that from a technology perspective, we're starting to see, you know, the, the, the fragmentation perhaps aligning a little bit more closely because the participants in the system are starting to, to, to join forces in particular areas. Thanks very much, Elise, and also to Rob, Nicola and Carenza for joining us, and also to Francis and Johnny for staying up late to share their perspective from the UK. Until next time, thank you very much for listening and goodbye.